Welcome back once again, Kyle Style Podcast. Okay, so this is going to be part four of the Parsing of Madness. Uh, Sam Harris and, Ma- and uh, Omer Aziz's uh, best podcast ever interview. I understand this is going long, and I'm afraid that it's not even going to fit into four episodes. I think we're going to have to go to five, just because there's so much going on. And I don't want to go over long on the intro, because that's just going to push it longer, but I want to I want to explain a little bit here. It occurred to me, what you have here is something like... If you were at a, you were at a cocktail party and you were uh, you had two you know doctors talking and they were throwing jargon back and forth and then you tried to jump into the conversation because you you know watched ER or Scrubs and you think you know something about medicine, they will maybe humor you. <laughs> Uh, they may humor you, they may uh, entertain your uh, attentions, but they know that you are an amateur. Okay, now, I am certainly an amateur in compared to even Omer Aziz, as misguided as I think he is, and obviously compared to Sam Harris, like, he just has, you know, his actual books written, and I'm just some hack with a microphone. But anybody, a bystander, listening to the conversation might just completely tune out. Now, I'm hoping to be something of a a translator. I'm trying to take this high-level conversation they're throwing around, well, Hamas did this and and, uh, Takia and all this other stuff, and I I have to break it down and parse it, and I already know about some of this stuff. So I'm hoping that I can facilitate a little bit more understanding from, uh, you know, maybe intermediates and beginners into this whole shit show fiasco of... Islam and the West and politics and foreign policy and all this stuff. So, bear with me. We're going to start slicing and dicing, and I'm going to try to uh, provide some back, uh, some backing, uh, researched uh, critiques of both sides. And again, I'm going to try to be fair where I can, and I'm going to be belligerent where I can, because that's more fun for me. So, sit down, strap in, and here we go. Part four. Hamas also stopped suicide bombing for theological and political reasons, and now they actually need to rein in Islamic Jihad and other farther right-wing groups within the Palestinian territories who want to suicide bomb. Okay, well, we're near the two-hour mark, so let's just try to cover a little more of your text. I want to talk about these, these issues of radicalization and political Islam. Okay, it's going to come up. Well, even just this next piece, I think, is worth doing. So, so the, the paragraph is, what is right in the book? Yeah. <clears throat> What is right in the book can be attributed solely to Majid Nawaz. In fact, one can skip over everything Sam Harris says because he is merely repackaging ideas he has articulated many times before. Among the elementary truisms Nawaz points to, addressing the grievances many young Muslims feel, changing the narrative the Islamist demagogues have mastered, injecting a dose of cultural liberalism into conservative societies to induce progress on women's rights and free speech, raising the low expectations held by too many Americans about supposedly thin-skinned Muslims who cannot take a joke and must be coddled. Well and good and self-evident enough, except to the most benighted ideologues. <clears throat> okay. So and I hope we can talk about what a strategy for um, actually inducing that kind of progress looks like. I proposed one earlier in our conversation about supporting the leftist 
and progressive element in the Middle East and Muslim world that exists existed in the form of the Pakistan People's Party before it, it was co-opted by by the okay, right. Existed in the form of okay. So we need to support the leftists and reformers in the Islamic world. Okay, fair enough. I mean, the the change has to come from within, right? Because if if Westerners even I would say probably Western educated, you know, Islamic Muslims or, or Arab people were involved, other Arabs and Muslims would say that they're a corrupting influence, right? It has to come from I guess the region itself. It has to come from uh the Imams in the in, in Islam and not just, you know, in I don't know, Bangladesh or whatever. It has to come from mainstream, uh, you know, Arabs and large populations have to embrace these changes. Otherwise, it's just more Western meddling. And all you have to do is point to some influential Westerner who has a role in the reform and boom, it, it would undermine the endeavor for the purists or the hardliners, right? Wait, I want to list off some of these people so, so your listeners don't think that well, you, you guys you, are the... you can't, but just, just do it when we start talking about the text. I mean, so okay. I, I just – so you bring up two things in this paragraph that that I want to deal with. I, I, I think your frame – again, your framing of this issue strikes me as just false here. So the, the first point is you seem to be claiming that all of this is so obvious, right? Now, all the points that that Majid makes are so obvious as to not even require as to not even require saying, right? So it's as though all Muslims sound exactly like Majid, and I can't imagine how you can say this. But well, oh, I can I mean, say it because I know Muslim reformers who have been working on the front lines of these issues okay. in America, in Canada, in Britain, and in the Middle East and South Asia. That's okay. why there are, I'm sure you can point to. I I know a few other Muslim reformers, right? But there's almost no one. Who sounds like Majid? I mean, you don't even sound like Majid, right? And that's why Majid is such a breath of fresh air, right? And and, and that's why he gets so much abuse from his fellow Muslims. If if, if you think that what he's no, doing is totally obvious, right? If you think that it's, it's uncontroversial to say that we, we need to go from pluralism to secularism to liberalism, as he does in, in our book, then you have to explain why he gets so much abuse. A great friend of mine, Ali Taraz, who is also a writer— was call was writing against uh, what he calls Falwell Muslims in 2007 in a five part series for the Guardian. Now he steeped that in Islamic history and he offered a way forward that was actually plausible. In fact, it influenced me about creating and supporting and fostering or recreating actually the Muslim left, which already exists in nascent form in every single country. Um, and so these reformers reformers already exist. I mean, you said I don't sound like Majid Nawaz. I take that because of my good Canadian accent as, as, as a compliment, I wrote an article after Charlie Abdo. I'd say that those cartoons should be republished because no community deserves special treatment. All right. I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but yes, thank you, Omer, for uh, having clear thought about that. Uh, the Charlie Hebdo cartoons should have been republished by every media outlet just so that people can see what it is that may or may not be offensive about them. Um, he, he seems to proclaim that, though, as though it's very forward-thinking of him, which I find interesting. Uh, it shouldn't be. It should be a de facto practice and... Uh, yeah, uh, but I, I don't want to beat a dead horse and say uh, pat Omer on the back a little bit and say, yeah, good, you know, hey, welcome to the show. You can maybe be a part of, you know, Western civilization and free civil discourse. But 
not all Muslims feel that way, clearly. Okay? Not all feel that way. We're not trying to convert Omer further. We're trying to reach those people who are the most, as like Sam Harris called them, uh, energized to uh, commit these kinds of atrocities like Charlie Hebdo or the Paris attacks. We need to reach them, not the Western liberally educated, uh, you know, <laughs> reformer types, right? Right, and that's something that Majid and I and you and I would agree on. The reason why Majid Nawaz is criticized by people like Harun Mogul, by many others within the Muslim community, why he lacks standing, and by standing I mean legitimacy within those communities, is because he's seen very often as lecturing them from the outside. Well, it certainly doesn't help his standing to have people who don't know him and don't know what his intentions are call him a fraud in a widely read publication, now does it? Do you know what someone told me? Someone told me, I don't, a conservative Muslim said, he didn't need a lecture from a former jihadist because he didn't have any inclination to become a jihadist. He was just trying to practice his Islam. And this person, and many people like him, don't take Majid Nawaz seriously. They don't read him and they're not going to listen to him. But they will listen to the, to the local community organizers working every single day within Muslim communities in mosques and community centers and have been doing so for the past 30 years. Yeah, okay, well, and uh, those, those who were politically organized in the Middle East and South Asia. Okay, maybe Omer's uh, friend there uh, didn't need to be lectured to by a former jihadi, okay? But maybe it's not for him, okay? Maybe some other Muslim would want to hear what a former uh, jihadist has to say, or former Islamist has to say. And maybe, as he was pointing out, other community organizers and everything, maybe Majid's book and Sam, Majid and Sam's book would be beneficial to them in offering uh, ways of presenting the and ideas about reform, ways of, uh, as Omer pointed out in the previous uh, episode, I think, uh, neutralizing the the really toxic and negative views and then influencing young Muslims to act in a way and behave in a way and I guess believe in a way that is more beneficial to everybody on earth, not just, uh, you know, Muslim men. (laughs) Right, but the difference between Majid and those people and the reason why Majid is so much clearer on the points that we need to get clear about and the Muslim community needs needs to get clear about, points like free speech and the rights of the minorities within the minorities, the rights of gays and, and uh, women and free thinkers and even apostates. The reason why I can count on almost one hand the number of people who are as clear as Majid in the Muslim community on these points is because they are not practicing the kind of identity politics that these other people practice, the people like Murtaza Hussein, or, and the kind of identity politics that I certainly read in your in the background of your piece, and then I hear, where, hear where, in the background where do I of what practice, you're saying. Where do I practice well, identity politics? Well, it's, it's your whole— I'm opposed to identity politics. Well, no, but, it, liberal. but it's— No, but it's your whole beef against Majid as not being sufficiently rooted in the community. Is it, That's that he's a basic got no proposition. Standing. If you want to change a community, if you want to influence change, you have to be seen as a, as a legitimately rooted within that community. Okay, well, well, go back to Ma- Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. These people would not have influenced change if they were seen as outsiders. This is a fundamental okay. political principle. Yeah, but that okay, but that is also a problem with the state of the community. It's a problem that's to see everything through the lens of politics and identity politics. Even worse is a problem when you're talking about 
for instance, the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, right? It, it's, it's entirely legitimate for Muslims to feel like Majid Nawaz is not one of them because he is getting taking money from right-wingers. Well, let's get to that because that, that's not true. But, but first of all, okay, but it, I, it, it's, I, I, not I legi- it's not legitimate because – think about what you're saying about – think about Majid's story, right? First of all, he was an Islamist. He wasn't a, a jihadist. But he was an Islamist. He had a Muslim family, which he lost when he lost his Islamism, right? So he's, he had a hijabi wife. He had a son with her. They're both estranged from him because of Islamist ideology, right? He ha- he runs an organization that, that is staffed mostly by Muslims. They also have Muslim families. The, the idea, I mean, later on in the piece, you say that what what he has to do is talk to more Muslims. All he does is talk to Muslims. He's lived in, in multiple Muslim countries. He speaks fluent Arabic and Urdu. He's studied with theologians. He, to say that he's not rooted in the community is crazy. Now, I, I understand he's not perceived as okay. being rooted in and the he, community for those reasons. And he's not perceived because... He's buddying up to right-wingers. Of the identity. That that delegitimizes him. Look, he's a political reformer, and so he should understand the basic equations that that determine political success. I want to get to your actual statements about him in the piece. Okay, okay. I want to respond to a quick – look, I agree with you. The minorities within the minorities must be protected, right? However many atheists there are in Saudi Arabia or Egypt, they need to be protected, and we must speak out on behalf of them, so that the Muslim right, the Falwell Muslims, don't don't um, dominate the narrative. Why would they need protection? And if these ideas are so contrary to Islamic teaching, as Omar claims, then why are they in danger at all? And then why would they need protecting? Right? It is, it's kind of a it's kind of a chicken and egg thing happening here. And then why would the uh, why would the conservative uh, radical conservative Wahhabi type voice dominate the narrative, unless there was adherence from the ma- the general population? But one thing I don't hear you speak out about are all those the Muslims in the majority who have very often been killed and maimed either by their own dictators whom we we have supported or by by our bombs. You know, Stephen Walt, the Harvard uh, professor, did a back of the envelope uh, examination of how many Muslims in the United States has bombed and, and killed, and he came up to 300,000. There were o- almost a million people who were killed in Iraq. Okay, so he throws out the numbers from uh, Stephen Walt, and just looking this up, it's it, it's not as clear-cut as he's kind of presenting it. I mean, it depends on how you, what, what numbers you're counting, who's responsible for what, right? Are, are we directly responsible for the sectarian violence in Iraq? Well, that's a question. Uh, are are we responsible for what uh, the Iraqi army, the sort of official Iraqi army, the killings that they commit, right? Um, and do we does is that balanced against any kind of moral obligation at a UN or international level to be involved in the first place, right? So the it's not just we're just indiscriminately bombing all these Islamic people, okay? Because we also aren't bombing, we're not bombing Islamic people in the Philippines or Indonesia or in India, right? They're they're fine, right? We're not attacking them. We're attacking people, you know, in Middle Eastern countries that have shown aggression, aggression to their neighbors and all this other stuff. But we weren't even attacking the people of Iraq to begin with, right? We were trying to, to cut the head off the snake, and we did— and then this is what's happened, 
1,500 civilians in Gaza. Sisi has estimatedly killed thousands of people. Bashar al-Assad, and here our inaction is, is, is culpable. 800,000 people. I, have, I don't see you criticizing or lamenting um, the deaths of those people. It makes me wonder, does your heart turn for their lives or not? First of all, I do lament collateral damage. In fact, my, my discussion Look, of- You dehumanize it again, collateral damage. No. These are individuals, Sam. Wow. I mean, that, that's just like a childish, like, chastisement. I mean, come on. Like, you, you just think that he's just so callous that, you know, he just, oh, it's just some Muslims. Who cares? Just some brown people, right? Get over you. I mean, virtue signal much? Come on. Like, you just, what do you want him to say? My heart bleeds every day for every Muslim life lost. Like, come on. That's not even realistic for people who actually do care. They, they don't think about it every single second of every single day, constantly driving themselves crazy thinking about the, you know, the cruelty of the world. No, there's levels of involvement and closeness to it, and you can talk about it in the abstract, and you can talk about specific anecdotes, and you can be moved by individual stories, right? But to say that, you know, oh, Sam Harris he just doesn't care, you know, hey, Americans, we just don't care, they're just Muslims. No, we care. Our bombs cost money. I mean, how about that? <laughs> I mean, just our bombs cost money. We got to send, you know, I got buddies in the military. You got to send them over there to get shot at again. I don't want that, right? So, yeah, at the very least, there's that. Never mind, let's just not have a war for a while, you know? Maybe the Middle East could become a nice place to go on vacation. I hear it's warm there, you know, if it wasn't just seemingly constantly on edge with violence. That's nonsense. Omer's just the virtue signal much. These are people who have been I, I, massacred not, and I, maimed. No, no, I, I don't mean to dehumanize with that phrase. I mean, that, that is, we can talk about that being a problematic phrase, but I'm just referring to the fact that there are people who have been killed in wars, some wars that I think are defensible, some wars that I think are not, right? I mean, there's a difference there. I, I, I view the war in Iraq and the, the war in Afghanistan differently, but collateral damage is a huge problem in war, and it's, it has been for a very long time. We won what I think everyone views as a necessary war against Germany in World War II. And the level of collateral damage there was just as horrific as ever happened in human history. And and now the Germans are our friends, right? So now if you're going to look at the bombing of Dresden, I think in retrospect, that's it was probably indefensible even at the time. Okay, so the bombing of Dresden, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, during World War II, um, European theater, uh, between February 13th and 15th of 1945, so over 700 bombers from the British uh, RAF Royal Air Force and over 500 from the United States Air Force uh, dropped thousands of tons of bombs uh, and incendiary devices on the city of Dresden, Germany. Now, Dresden had been declared an open city. It was not a militarized city. It was supposed to be safe from bombing. And we kind of bombed it into absolute oblivion. Check out the book. Uh, well, almost any Kurt Vonnegut book, I think he mentions it. Uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, Breakfast of Champions, I think it's in there. Uh, he, he describes his, his own experience of surviving through uh, the bombing of Dresden as a prisoner of war of the Germans, right? So, segue. Anyway... It is arguable that Dresden was a war crime. I mean, talking about like 200,000 to 500,000 victims, uh, all civilians for the most part, and completely destroyed a historic, beautiful city. 
but it's certainly arguable that it was a war crime. I mean, it's uh, it's been bandied about, but uh, that is a very unfortunate part of it's a subset of like what Sam Harris is talking about: justifiable war or wars which are necessary and even morally you're morally obligated to uh to execute these wars right uh and tactically unnecessary but let's say it was tactically necessary our generals would have our generals would have been in nuremberg if we lost that war yeah. that was a war crime as was hiroshima so okay. yes so i've heard this argument before and the problem i have with this is that on the one hand this was combat this was warfare on a scale the likes of which the world had never seen okay and specifically in the case of japan a complete war of aggression they attacked us okay and we battled them and liberated nation after nation they committed incredible atro i mean it wasn't a great time for anybody but they committed incredible atrocities against the chinese okay when we finally had them surrounded in the home islands, we resorted to dropping atom bombs. Okay, Now, on the one hand, that's pretty horrific, and that's the only time in history it's ever happened. However, think about the conventional bombing that was going on, and how how many civilians would have died in a continuous air campaign, kind of like what we did over Germany, just trying to get the Japanese to capitulate. They were doing kamikaze suicide planes into our ship's they were not going to capitulate easily, and the civilians would have been the ones caught in the crossfire. They would have been the collateral damage. There's the, there's the term. Never mind all the servicemen that we would have had to have put into the meat grinder to try to get them to capitulate. Two nukes, done. And then they could begin rebuilding. Okay? So comparing comparing suicide bombers and all this other stuff and this kind of Islamic terrorism to trying to say that the West is just evil because we've dropped atomic bombs, they'll detonate an atomic bomb as soon as they get the chance, okay? <laughs> well, I agree with you. Uh, okay, so no, but there, there, are, there are debates on – I think there are reasonable debates on all of these points in terms of yeah, – and I think Hiroshima – is more, certainly more debatable than Dresden. But in any case, we waged war against Germany and Japan uh, at a scale that is that no one could contemplate now, and, and, and certainly no one could be sanguine about defending ethically. And now the Germans and the Japanese are our friends, right? I mean, and we went, we went into those societies. We didn't rape and kill everyone and steal all their, their material wealth and enslave them. Which we didn't do in Iraq or Afghanistan either, for that matter. Uh, you can argue we went in for oil wealth, but we didn't just strip the country bare and then head home with trunks full of loot and riches. No, we went in and rebuilt their societies with them, and now they are our allies. And that is the world. And that one, there's two things to, to realize about that. One is that it reveals something about the importance of our intentions in waging that war. Our intention was not world conquest. We weren't trying to execute a genocide against Germans and, and Japanese. And there really is no moral equivalence to the two sides in that war. When you ask what the Germans would have done if they had conquered the world or the Japanese if they had conquered the world, 
we would have a very different world we, we would be living in now. And so you're, even the analogy you drew to Nuremberg there was false. Yeah, okay, well, look, in, intentions in foreign policy are actually the most useful and the most irrelevant to okay. analyze an, an, an okay. ethical, an ethical, and the reason why is because you can have great intentions and, and kill a million people, and you yes. can have awful yes. intentions, and it's not, and doesn't often turn on the weapon. So yes, World War II is in some cases not a useful analogy today because all the norms and laws that we've developed internationally since then were, were a response to that brutality. And we don't want to go back to what it was like bombing Dresden or dropping a nuclear bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the, right? de- but the deeper but, but, issue, there's no way around the deeper issue, which is to wage any kind of war, even a necessary war, it runs the risk of collateral damage, which yeah, but th- in, which these in, numbers in detail, are huge. Sam. Okay, yes, okay, for, so, for the most sophisticated no, militaries. No, but okay, fact, some of these, okay, some of these, said, some of these numbers are, are are some of that data is highly politicized, and I don't know what the numbers are in certain cases because, for instance, the U.S. is getting blamed in many of those tallies. The Pentagon for, numbers are actually conservative. Okay. If you look at what other impartial wait, investigators wait, wait. look at, the casualties in the Iraq war, what you call collateral damage and just dismiss as if these it, bodies it's not, no, did no, not no. exist. Okay, okay, look, again, okay, you've just wandered into a totally uncharitable and disingenuous reading of what I said. Collateral damage is a standard phrase that everyone uses on this topic. I'm not diminishing the horror of those who are collaterally damaged. And I've written about this at length, okay? And there's, I don't know anyone who has focused on how bad ethically collateral damage is more than I have, okay? But you exonerate by pointing to intentions, and no, intentions I'm in not, international relations are irrelevant, Sam. They're, they're n- okay, but intentions do mean something because if, if we were just openly... Uh, rampaging around the world uh, with open imperialism. We had the war paint on and we were just, uh, you know, we had a, a, a war president that was just openly saying, let's just conquer these brown people. Let's just conquer this country. Let's just strip it of every nut and bolt that's of value and bring it back home. That would be different than this sort of, I don't know, almost oxymoronic like humanitarian warfare thing that we're trying to do where we have precision weapons and there's UN involved and there we invite humanitarian aid and Doctors Without Borders are in there, which maybe we accidentally bomb from time to time. Uh, but the intentions do mean something. Okay, is it irrelevant? Is the difference between performing our own rape of non-king on Japan after we've militarily subjugated them and doing what, in fact, we did, which is helping them rebuild their society. Is that difference irrelevant? Look, in terms of foreign policy and international relations, if we hold the highest principle, human rights, to be we want to save lives and we don't want innocent people to be killed, that turns on consequentialism. Right. Anyone, and the, the, this goes back to Thucydides. The intentions are irrelevant because people have often, oftentimes very good intentions to do horrendous things or they have awful intentions and they end up doing less awful things. The difference there, Omer, is that the intention is the only so guide to what Japan they're going raped, to do next. Japan had a rape of Nanking that they intended and that they executed and that they were able to implement. Now, if you suppose that their intentions were great – and that what they wanted to save China from the Communist Party, for example, they wanted to reclaim China. They had very benign intentions the way the colonial and imperialist powers did. And yet more people were raped than would have been had they had awful intentions. Then the, the ethics of that leads to an absurd conclusion. OK, um, I'm not quite sure, but I think that Omer was flirting right here with uh, 
what is kind of known as uh, the Japanese war crime denialism. It's kind of similar to Holocaust denialism. They couch their war crimes and atrocities in this very sort of political thing where they, it's like, oh, we were trying to liberate China from the communists, and oh, all the pictures you see, those are actually the Chinese doing that to other Chinese, and we were trying to stop them, and it's this distorted, weird view of history. It's become it's become somewhat popular amongst, uh, you know, some Japanese to kind of rationalize the severe, incredible mistreatment of the, you know, Koreans and, um, and Chinese. But it seems strange that Omer would invoke that, given that he, in some, he claims to be a liberal. Uh, he claims to be for human rights, and yet, you know, uh, Chinese comfort women, which the Japanese soldiers used uh, for sexual purposes, obviously, seems to depart from his his narrative a little bit there. Right. The fact is no. that the United, this, this was this was the point of contention between you and Noam Chomsky, again, who I have some many disagreements with, especially post 9-11. But intentions in foreign policy, this is the reason why it, uh, the morality of an action or the ethics of an action cannot turn on intention, because A, every Western policymaker claims to have great intentions. And B, if our highest principle is saving lives and not having innocent people killed, that's consequentialism. And that turns on how many people have actually no, died. Okay. Well, for, first, no, I've written at great length about consequentialism. I've written an entire book putting forward my version of consequentialism. You don't have to stop your analysis of consequences at body count. And in fact, if you do just stop at body count, you run into into just moral well, it's monstrosities. One, it's one place. It's one place, right? Okay. Since we're talking about collateral damage. Yes. So intention matters for a variety of reasons. And as you know, I didn't actually get to have a conversation with Chomsky on this point. I was just simply trying to have one. And who knows, it could have gone as sideways as this one, and it very likely would have. But the issue with intention is that if nothing else, knowing what someone was attempting to do and why they were attempting to do it is a very good guide for the kinds of things they will attempt to do in the future. When you understand what somebody wants, how they want the world to be, then you know what it will be like, very likely, to collaborate with them in the future. You know whether they're going to be a good neighbor. If you know your neighbor is a cannibal, right, and he's just coming over for dinner every night in the hopes that he's going to get a chance to eat you when you're not looking, right, his intentions are highly relevant to know, right? And it's different than if it's somebody who really has your best interests at heart. Now, of course, this is an obvious and pedantic and unimportant point that it is possible with the best of intentions to create huge harms. Yes, obviously, that is something which, if you do have the best of intentions, you really care about. If I want to help my daughter and I wind up cutting her head off, no one is going to be more concerned about the disparity between my intention and the results in the world right. than I am. It would okay? be gross negligence. So here... Which kind of brings up an interesting point with, uh, you know, in the in the muddle in the Muslim world and in the Middle Eastern world and even in India, there are these uh, honor killings. Um, you know, a woman has has uh, disrespected her family or brought shame upon them by, you know, being seen with a man, uh, you know, on her own or having premarital affairs, etc., etc., premarital relations, and. They get acid thrown in their faces, they get burned alive, they get stoned to death, all this kind of thing. That is intended 
as was the burqa and the hijab and all of the modesty, you know, practices, is intended to make more moral women. It's intended to keep them moral and pure and safe and all these other things. So talk about intentions going awry. Uh, you have women cloistered, and then if something does happen, then that woman bears the shame of, uh, you know, being of engaging in any sexual activity, etc., etc. Then they are killed or disfigured, right? This is a dist- this is a confused and distorted approach to morality, and Omer seems to have a very uh, a, a sharp eye for it in terms of Western civilization, but it has, doesn't seem to be able to turn that back on Islamic culture. What's the distinction between an intentional war crime and, and a war crime that's grossly negligent? You're a great defender of the Israeli state. I think that Israel, of course, has a right to exist. But independent analyses of the 2014 Gaza war showed that they, they used, in fact, less discriminate weapons than they could have and that they bombed many civilian, civilian centers. Well, listen, and that I, had, I, this is something we could talk about with an infinite amount of time. I want to get back to the text. I, I think that, uh, okay, as you know, the analysis of minorities within minorities and not all these other Muslims, which is why you're accused of dehumanizing Muslim okay. lives because of that. I, I haven't heard you say it in print a, a, at all, actually. What, what, what haven't I said in print? Lamenting the, the, the immense loss of life caused by Western foreign policy and the support for, for local dictators. I mean, I mean well, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people now. We have to talk about specific situations. There are specific dictators in specific moments where the alternative to them is either just total chaos or jihadist lunacy, right? So That's bullshit, Sam. That's entirely bullshit. Listen, and I know you're probably thinking about Sisi and Assad. The fact is that the democratic opposition has not had the opportunity to organize and engage in a political space. Well, that's the, 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 oh, there there may, those, there may be cases where that's the case. Those, the, the, wait, wait, no, no. Those dictators actually worsen um, the Islamist problem, and they actually they actually confirm the Islamist narrative, and that and they push the Islamists underground, and the Islamists have an ability to organize and say, look, we're anti-establishment, we're anti-status quo. These this okay. this person in power is an infidel, well, supported listen, by the okay, West. Let's, let's just sh- to take a moment to drill down on this, okay? Because one of the main criticisms of the war in Iraq, right, which I did not support, which I always just said, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. We'll know in the end based on consequentialist analysis, but it looks like a, a dangerous distraction from the war in Afghanistan. That has always been, you know, at the time when people were supporting it and people were against it, I didn't know what I thought about the war in Iraq. But the people who looked at it then, and certainly the people who look at it now and say, we are culpable for all the death and destruction caused by our misadventure there, they say this either explicitly or implicitly claiming that we should have left the dictator in place, right? We should have left Saddam Hussein in power because deposing him just pulled the lid off of all the sectarian hatred that we should have known was there, right? We are, we are morally culpable for our ignorance and our negligence. And we pulled the lid off of this and now we have ISIS. So we made ISIS and- That's and, simplistic. That's very simplistic. Okay, and I don't met, agree with that. All right. So, okay. Well, many people believe this, but in, but in any case, then I'll ask you what in fact you believe here. Should, sure. should we just have left Saddam Hussein in power? 
No, I mean, look, of course, that Saddam Hussein had, he was actually the closest, I know the analogy is made to Hitler, but he was actually the closest despot um, to Hitler in terms of his totalitarianism. I mean, this is someone who would execute people and then send a bill to the family for the bullets, right? This is incomprehensible evil. And so we should have, we should have taken him out uh, at some point. Now, the, so the war with, with Saddam Hussein was postponed in 1991. And based on my own understanding of Gulf War One, as we kind of come to know it, uh, we kind of should have prosecuted that war. We should have finished it then. But for political reasons or whatever, we held back. And here's the result now. You know, 20, what, 26 years later, we're still kind of dealing with the aftermath and the fallout from not taking him out then when it would have been solid it would have been clear and the motives were clear and you know here we are so the we saddam hussein tries to make kuwait a province of iraq he is repelled legitimately and of course many progressives at the time opposed that in fact i think even hitchens did but according to anti-imperialist logic and, and they were wrong there and what happens afterwards is there is a organic uprising with Shia Muslims and Kurds and even Sunnis disaffected from the regime. And they're looking around thinking they're going to get support from the United States. And the U.S. is completely silent. Saddam Hussein c- conducts a mass a massacre of them, mass murdering Shia and the Kurds. Okay, so, so, so what we should have let, done. Let's fast forward. Let's fast forward. What, we should, have, what should we have done? Should, we should have gone in then and supported yeah, the Yeah, it the was Kurds? a deliberate policy position taken by Colin Powell and the Bush administration so, that there was not going to be regime change okay. even though the, the people were demanding it. But how are you just not saying that we shouldn't have pulled the lid off of all the sectarian chaos a, a decade or more earlier? Because there, the sectarian chaos is not inherent in the people, Sam. What happens, it, what happens in 2003, and if you want to, what I would have done in 2003, right before the Iraq war was launched, the United Nations passed a resolution unanimously supported by Russia and China as well, demanding that Saddam Hussein reveal his, his weapons program. Now, had we done this through international law and actually gone to the UN again, there'd be, and, 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 and were receptive to, to global public opinion, we could have had the world on our side. But the sectarian hatred is not inherent. It's not like we just pulled it off. What happened was that the U.S. allowed all kinds of looting and massacres to occur. The, there weren't, weren't enough troops there. Mr. Bremer debathified the country and put 100,000 people with guns in their hands unemployed. And then a gangster, a religious gangster named Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the founder of ISIS, goes and begins blowing up U.N. buildings and mosques. That's how the sectarian war begins. It's not because of the U.S. war. And it's not because the sectarian hatreds were inherent in it. Here, This is what you should ask. Wait, Sam, just one, one final point. The people on the left or anyone who says, we went into Iraq, therefore there is sectarian hatred there. The question you should ask them is, do you think sectarian hatred is inherent in the Iraqi and Arab people? Because that's the conclusion that you ultimately well, have to agree with. And I don't buy that. It's inherent in the 1,400-year-old schism between Shia and Sunni. And it's, and it's spread the world over. So you, so you have to explain why Sunnis blow up Shia mosques in Pakistan. So, yeah. I mean, Omer starts to have a point when, in regards to this kind of uh, these shiftless young men presumably that are armed and don't have any direction and then you radicalize them because they you know are dejected and they don't know what to do it starts to have a point and yet the exploitation that he's talking about 
is purely based on the Sunni-Shia split. I mean, it, it, it's hard to... It'd be hard to get, uh, I don't know, uh, Seahawks fans and San Francisco 49ers fans to start genociding each other because the severity just isn't really there. They might, you know, they might heckle each other and maybe, you know, have a fisticuff every once in a while. But it'd be a totally different thing for the team rivalry to supersede uh, you know, national identity, a sense of social cohesion, etc. So the Sunni-Shia split was there and was easily exploited in an attempt to create the sectarianism by, I don't know, people who were committed to this, right? The leadership, right? Um, the momentum that that has is far stronger than we want to free Iraq and you don't, right? Like, that, like the idea of a free Iraq is just sort of torn asunder by, again, like, go, you go back to the basics, a supernatural claim about who is the descendant of Muhammad and not, and what it is that they want the world to be, right? These, the, the, the underlying claims are supernatural and, like, kind of ultra-natural, and they stand in the way of anything like a free Iraq, right? Or a free Afghanistan. Or or Ahmadi Mosques in Pakistan. Not Sunni, Sam. It's a particular jihadist organization. The Pakistani Taliban does this because because they want to stoke sectarian tensions. Where in the Quran Quran does it say Sunni or Shia? Again, a political dispute. Okay, that's really asinine because where in the Bible does it say you need to go to confession? Where does it say that there that you need to say hell hell Marys? Uh, where in uh, you know uh, you you could chop this up. This is where you arrive at after the quote unquote holy person has left the earth. Okay, uh, Jesus said things. People thought it was real important, etc. 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 La di da. You end up with the Catholic Church. Somehow it's somehow connected to the Sermon on the Mount and with the actual actions of Jesus. Same thing with I don't know the Talmud. I'm sure like you have Jews who think you need to wear silly like curly Q sideburns and you know dress modestly. Other ones don't seem to care. Other ones think you need to you know behave differently. That isn't really political per se. What this is is a dispute about the religious pursuit the the practice of the religion yeah sunni and shia aren't in the quran and omer fucking knows that it is a uh, it is in some sense yeah a political development that came afterward it was a power struggle uh, over the the followers of islam at the time who's right who's wrong this this uh you know this descendant that descendant this caliph that caliph but the underlying point is who is essentially more holy who actually has the correct Islam, or who has the correct uh, lineage, as if somehow, I guess, Muhammad inherited his holiness, Muhammad, like, was infused with holiness, and then his children would then be holy, and then it, like, sort of starts to subdivide from there, like, in a, you know, hereditary fashion, so then, like, many generations later, there's more people, but they're all less holy. Wow. That's like a neat thought. But that's not real life. The The real life is 
people started having an immediate power struggle as soon, basically as soon as Muhammad was gone uh, over who was going to have control of his uh, his population his followers for probably visceral human reasons but no so the Sunni and Shia the split isn't in the Quran but it doesn't need to be but at the same time it doesn't make it political now Sure, they are locked in a political struggle to obtain power, but the reason that they are in conflict is because they believe differing things about their connection, the connection of their faith to the directly to the prophet or not. And that's the conflict. If they didn't care whether it was connected to Muhammad or not, then they wouldn't be having this conflict. No, it's not a political dispute. It's, it's a difference of uh, of theology. I mean, What's so, the difference in theology of well, who should rule? That's politics. Well, it's it's a different theological reading of history in the succession after the prophet. It's a different and, political reading, and of it's history. the it's the veneration of of imams. I mean, it's, it's yes, it's tiny differences in theology, but these are the differences that matter. No, there's nothing, Sam. The the the, the Sunni Shia dispute begins. After okay. the death of the but, fourth caliph, and but, there's a civil war that takes place. For if you're going to call reasons. it, but but it's it's politics that is is now religiously enshrined. I mean, someone who's born a Shia who identifies only as a Shia, or a poor, someone who's more more reasonably born a Sunni and views Shia Shia as apostates. That is a religious conception of what you're calling politics. Yeah, okay, but, but see, now you're now this is a sleight of hand because you've broadened what, what counts as religion. No, no, so this, the, this only different, the only difference between these text. people is religion. They're the only we should not talk about text. The only we can talk about text, but politics is what matters here. It's not. It's, it, religious tribalism is not ordinary politics. And furthermore, that, that that's what is confusing the whole thing, is that you have theocracy, you have a theocratic uh, impulse there, mixed with kind of more secular politics or more real-world politics. So you have religious leaders and political leaders, and they're all kind of intermingled, and they're all kind of the same thing. And we have some of this problem here in the States, right? We have... Uh, you know, conservative uh, evangelical types, and they court the far right, and they invoke God and Jesus and all this other stuff in their uh, political campaigns. But we don't have specifically, explicitly, uh, religious political leaders, right? There, there isn't a church that gets elected into office; it's a person, and this is an issue that. Like it, it transcends history in some sense. Obviously, if the Sunni Shia split became a political struggle and a material and a you know martial struggle between factions, then yeah, there's a political aspect to it. But they weren't arguing over what to call the nation that they were building. It became about who descends from the prophet. In the same sense, here in the states, we don't have, or in the opposite sense, we elect. Both both Democrats and Republicans uh, uh, kind of stump for religious groups. They stump for churches. There there hasn't been an openly atheist politician in America that has you know taken the White House. You know Kennedy taking the White House as a Catholic was some, somewhat scandalous at the time. Like this is an issue that we've sort of resolved by having that wall of separation. Thank you, Thomas Jefferson, but. To to say that politics and religion are completely separate 
in Islam is to that's just disingenuous. I mean, like Sharia is you say we say Sharia law a lot, but that's kind of a misnomer. Sharia is law. Um, to say that that isn't somehow a political aspect of itself, thus theocratic, thus very very confusing when you get right down to it, um, is just it's just disingenuous. Okay, the, religious the, tribalism is probably ingrained if, in us, if but you, it's politically manifest. If manifested. you think your political difference with someone matters not just for this world and not for any terrestrial purpose to which you could be devoted, but for eternity, in par- that will, it will spell the difference between whether or not you and your kids get into paradise. That is religion. That's not politics. Yeah, but that's not grounded in the text of oh, or, paradise. Or, or in paradise the is not anybody? the difference no, between the, the, the difference between the, the difference the between being apostate the Sunni and Shia. The difference between being an apostate and not, the legitimacy of waging jihad, the promise of martyrdom, that's not grounded in the texts? So it's uh, Sunnah uh, 1037, I think. Is that how this is? Uh, the prophet said, Allah will prepare for him who goes to the mosque every morning and in the afternoon an honorable place in paradise with good hospitality for what he has done every morning and afternoons going. Uh, in Islam, they refer to paradise as uh, jana, like J-A-N-N-A-H. So yeah, it's grounded in the text. Well, That's not okay, religious? Let's, let's talk about all those points, but the, the example that you use, which you've now run away from, is the bomb, the Sunni bombing of a Shia mosque. I'm not, run, not, I'm, I'm not running away from it. I'm where, talking where about religion. Where was the Sunni Shia war in 1920? Where was it? If it's all inherent in the text, where were the bombings of mosques by Sunnis and by okay. Shias in 1920? Where was it? This comes about for, for specific political reasons you're, you're that, saying, begin, you're saying that begin Sunni, in 1979. You're saying, that begin in 1979. You're, you're saying that the, the schism between Sunni and Shia the world over as a matter of Islamic history began in 1979? I'm saying that the bombing and the killing of Sunnis by Shia and by Shia of a Sunnis Begins in 1979 you're, you're for saying, a number of political reasons. You're saying reasons. There, there was not war. Well, there, there were no bombs if you go back too prior, far in history. Prior but, to, so prior to this, yes, the schism does exist, but they live next to each other because their only disagreement is a little bit on how they pray, depending on the sect, um, the the principles of of the faith in terms of the five or six pillars, and a political a uh, different reading of history that takes place after the prophet's death and after the death of of the caliphs, and so. This is a, a political interpretation, but the killing, the massacre, the bombing, which I condemn and which you condemn, begins in 1979 for a number of reasons, because of the Iranian revolution, you're, because of Saudi... You're saying there has been no blood spilled between Sunni and Shia? No, I didn't say that, Sam. But between, said, you're saying it started in 1979? There, there, there's always wars between brothers in every single in every single religion, and there is this thing called the narcissism of small differences, and there has been tensions. I'm saying... That the, the modern incarnation of the Sunni Shia war that we've seen with Saudi executing sh- the, the, the Sheikh and 50 people and Sunnis blowing up mosques, Zarqawi and ISIS blowing up mosques in, in Iraq and ISIS executing Shia, that begins in 1979 okay. for specific political reasons that apparently you don't want to discuss. No, no. Well, to say that. Mo- it's not theology there. To say that modern anything begins recently is is a tautology right i mean so yes bombs didn't exist until what the end of the 19th century mass killings there were no organized premeditated murder of shias before yes there might have been isolated pogroms that happened but there was nothing like we've seen 
now. It's okay. enti- for fourteen hundred years, largely. Yes, they're also Muslims lived they're, in they're, peace. Okay, so this I this claim that the Sunni and Shia were living in peace. I mean, this is just from the Wikipedia page. I'm sure you can find more specific details, but basically, um, Sunni uh, Sunnis were uh, attacking Shias, and there are ten such uh, like pogroms or uh, call it massacres, right? Between in just the 15th and to the 19th centuries, there were 10. So, I mean, it's 400 years, you know, it's just like one every 40 or 50 years, right? Libraries burned, people slaughtered, plunder, all this stuff. Okay, to say that this just begins in like the mid to late 20th century is just missing the point. One, there's communication. Two, there's organization. Three, there's outside influence. Of course, there's weaponry, there's technology, there's all these things that get involved, and it maybe amplifies the conflict. And there's also a post-imperialist border divisions that maybe didn't exist before, where various groups are kind of like stuck together, and they've got a border between them now as a result of you know, I guess uh, Sykes Pico, uh, but uh, the but the the result here is that the bullshit here is Omer saying that there was no violence between the two. There were violence between uh, Shia and Sunni going back to the the beginning of the schism. Okay. It's crazy to just say that it's just some purely. It's a constru- what he's getting at here is that it's also a construction of Western foreign policy that this division has become violent, and that's just not true. The, yes, with, with each other. Well, no, okay, for, and for, very often with 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 Jews and with Christians. All right. Well, now um, we're going into a variant reading of history here, which you are going to. Well, again, do you want me to quote, quote you Bernard Lewis on this? Because he said that it was much better for Muslim for Christians and Jews to live in Islamic in Islamdom yes. than it was for non okay. non Christians yes. and, and non Jews. And, and that says Christendom. absolutely nothing good about Islam, and just reminds us how terrible Christianity was in the 14th century or before. Right. Well, you so, have to historicize your comparisons, right? You can't compare it to 21st century. Uh, yeah, which is why he just said, in the 14th century, it was better for to be it was better to be living in the Islamic Golden Age than it was to live under Christendom in the 14th century. That quickly became not true after you know presumably the Mongol invasions and the sacking of Baghdad and the end of the Islamic Golden Era. The and, and what he's getting at here too is that. There's you, you can't retroactively apply modern morality to historical events. Well, well, you can, obviously, and we hope to learn from the process of, of comparing the two. But by that logic, that they're free because we now have... They're free of moral uh, responsibility because we have a different moral framework now? Um, hmm. Doesn't that mean that we don't have to have a conversation about reparations or slavery anymore? In America, I mean, does that what that means? That if you if you have to historicize it, you have to put it in context of the time period. That doesn't that then negate our our moral judgment of it now, and relieve them, absolve them of the responsibility of that time. Right? It was just the way things were. That's how it was back then, until it wasn't. When we changed, it became became better. 
And now here we are in the present, not becoming better, and dragging all this negative history with us. <sighs> right, I'm rambling. No, I'm... The nation-state is born I, in 1640. I, I am the first to admit how horrible medieval Christianity was, right? So it's, it's not... But you're drawing the wrong conclusion from that. You're saying that life for Christians and Jews was fine in the Muslim world, which it wasn't and never was, okay? Well, look, you have, to, you, you by, have by, to contextualize by, by it, though. Well, what's your definition of fine? Is it 21st century Switzerland? Then of course not. But if we're talking about the entire world that existed outside of the Muslim world at that point, Islamic Listen. civilization, with bo which both Hitchens and Bernard Lewis have praised for its diversity and openness— then that's the comparison you need to be making, Sam. Otherwise, well, well, it's no. ahistorical, and well, it's unfair well, to no. say, oh, well, Switzerland Listen. is nice now. Right. And actual historians and anyone who's actually interested in doing any real research does just that. They place it into a correct historical context wherein it makes it, it puts things to scale, right? It puts things in a context and makes them more understandable. In a world full of warfare and brutality, an act of warfare or brutality from one specific historical figure isn't not is not necessarily any more barbaric than anything else happening at the time, right? So, like Omer was saying, you can't apply our modern morality back onto it and then say, well, you know, well, Genghis Khan was just the devil. I mean, he slaughtered millions of people, of course, but you know, he that was their world. They lived in a world of warfare and conquest, right? So our moral judgments of them are not necessarily fair because there was not necessarily any other way for them to have known about uh, different types of morality or different levels of ethics and morality, and they didn't necessarily care. There was no concept of what human existence really was at the time. So their actions followed maybe more base instincts than human beings. Uh, uh, rambling again. Listen, it was possible in the 5th century B.C. to come up with a, a more benign, more tolerant, more open-minded view of the universe than, than the Abrahamic tradition ever managed, right? There were Greek philosophers, and there were Buddhists, and there were Jains, and there were people in other traditions who had ethics that were far more modern than anything Christianity, Judaism, or Islam managed for over a thousand years, right? So don't give me the, the story about it being ahistorical, right? It's possible for human beings to realize they don't want to keep slaves or, or force their women to live in bags or perform clitorectomies on their daughters or anything else we sh rightly deplore now and which is still part of our world. It was possible to realize that 2,000 years ago and some people managed it. Okay. Yeah, well, you know what? The civilizations that existed, you have to compare them, A, against each other, and B, you can compare them to the modern conception of rights, for example. So sh the Sharia, as it was practiced in the 9th and 10th century, gave women property rights. It gave women the right to divorce. It gave right, women the right to inherit. And again, I'm no, no fan of these regimes, but I'm trying to, I don't want to say educate you, but at least provide some facts. Women were fighting on the front lines of wars. That, that the Muslim armies had. And that's something that ISIS won't even allow today. The Ottoman Empire banned slavery in 1839. The United States didn't do it uh, until, uh, um, until a few years later. Okay, 1865 is when the U.S. Civil War ended, uh, but the Emancipation Proclamation was issued in 1863. Okay, just to be clear. Now, however, uh, just doing a little bit of digging here, this is interesting. 
Okay, so part of the reason why the slave trade declined in the Ottoman Empire was because of European involvement in the region. And at least right here on Wikipedia page, it's saying that uh, there was a campaign launched by the Russians in the Caucasus to uh, to combat Ottoman the Ottoman slave trade. So. And the and the UK, uh, the United Kingdom, they abolished slavery in 1833. So if we're doing an inherited sin kind of comparison, well, the UK is the the cleanest of all of out of all these. Uh, I don't know. I could look up which uh, which nation actually abolished slavery first, but I think I've made my point. Um, and so, like, look, we have to contextualize it within the history. This is the debate that I want to have. Because okay. if it's if it's all in the text and the, the 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 text is dead and it preaches terrorism, there's a connection between beliefs and consequences, as you say. Then why wasn't it happening before? Well, it was happening before, but it was happening in a, a context of less technology, right? So you don't. You, it's only so many people you can kill with swords and spears, right? So yes, bomb making technology changes the game, and nuclear bombs change the game. Dirty bombs even change the game, and this is what I'm worried about. But These massacres this, were not happening. But if but uh, listen, there are massacres of Jews going back throughout Muslim and Christian history, and at no point was it a good scenario to be a Jew living in the Muslim world or being or, or living in, in, the, the, in under Christendom in the Middle Ages. It just simply wasn't, and Although, it wasn't you for religious reasons. you recognize that there were some doctors and philosophers and polymaths who were Jewish and played yes. very central roles with the yeah. Islamic empires, right? Yes, okay, and we can probably number them on one hand, okay? So it's, well, I mean, I don't know about that. Listen, we can talk about the golden age of, of Islam if, if you insist, but I, I, do, I just want to go back to a point you made about my putative misunderstanding of the facts on the ground in a country like Iraq. Now, obviously, I'm aware that not every Iraqi is or was a jihadist, right? So when I'm talking about the sectarian hatred between Sunni and Shia, I'm not saying every Sunni or every Shiite hated his co-religionists, right? I am well aware that that these communities intermarried. I'm well aware that there are millions of Muslims in even in these contexts who just want to live normal lives and are not by any definition highly energized religious religious sectarians, right? And eager to fight an internecine civil war. So when I talk about pulling the lid off of this, I'm not talking about 100% of Iraqis just starting to commit murder based on their religious differences. But there's enough of a commitment to that in these societies that we are getting blamed for not having foreseen it. And I mean, to, to rewind the tape all the way back to the point where we first started to talk about dictators, it is not a crazy position to say or to wonder or to ask the question because we are being blamed endlessly now for not having done that. It is not crazy to wonder, well, is this society just too divided along religious lines? And it, is it too lacking in the kinds of institutions that you need in order to have a, a viable democracy and a commitment to civil society for us to just depose the dictator, no matter how bad well, this dictator is? And that's, yeah, a, that, that's, yeah. a, that's a question that 
it may be very difficult to get an answer. We may only know in retrospect what was true. But again, it is one of the main reasons why people think we were completely wrong morally and, and, and remain totally culpable for the resulting devastation for going into Iraq in the first place. And it is worth noting that, uh, you know, after we just conquered Germany and after we conquered Japan, those countries didn't devolve into a sectarian civil war. Uh, they went about rebuilding. So what's the difference here, right? Yeah, well, you know what? Going into a country and doing it negligently and not having enough troops and and completely debathifying the army and basically creating the space for a terrorist group, yes, we are culpable, culpable for that, okay. very much so. But, but I would argue that what all those failures you just listed were largely if not entirely the result of our not understanding the level of religious sectarianism. The no, it's not un no, the our understanding how to do regime war. change. That's no. what it was not. The sectarian hatreds were not – you didn't just take the lid off of something that was brewing for 1,400 years. That's not how it happened. How it happened was that armed men who were worried about – um, their lack of protection organized and no longer had a job. Okay, yeah, but they were, they were worried about their lack of protection because of the sectarian threat. Do you think that if Iraq was 100% Shia or 100% Sunni, we would have the same result when we ineptly deposed Saddam Hussein? I don't know. I mean, maybe I, there would be different sects. I don't know. No. I think, no, I think no, tribalism don't, is can, inherent. Don't inv invent different sects. I'm talking about 100% Sunni or 100% Shia. No different. A single sect. I think at that point, if Iraq was 100% Shia, what you would see is there would be ideological warfare, warfare if all the other assumptions hold. If we just – if there's not a functioning government, if there's any kind of looting, all, the, all those assumptions hold, then you're going to see ideological warfare. Yes. I mean we, it's been done before. But you, you, you think that sectarian hatreds are inherent and you want to support dictators because Islamists – because what comes afterwards I'm not, I'm, might you know, be no, worse. No, no, no. You're spinning this the wrong way. I'm not, one, I'm not saying in, in, inherent to what? It's inherent to the definition that, we, that you – Inherent well, to the society. You belong to a different sect than I do, right? It's inherent to the two people who, for whom their religious tribalism is the most important political variable in their lives. Okay, so there, there is something deeper here, right? Which is – I mean, Omer saying that if it wasn't for the religious sectarianism, then it would be ideological sectarianism, and they would be, you know, I don't know, I guess communists versus, uh, I don't know, I guess Islamists versus whatever. Like, so he he just said that it's inherent, that it just is a warfare culture that, you know, is just going to go to warfare regardless of the existence of the religious uh, aspect. At the same time, He's also, he also was saying, oh, well, the U.S. didn't go in with enough troops, and there wasn't enough people there to protect people. Protect people, like Sam Harris is saying. Protect people from what? They're, like, if, if they're, like, the looting? Well, that's opportunism, but that's not a full-scale suicide bomb. You don't suicide bomb and attack mosques while you're looting. You, you steal things that are of value. So that, I think, is kind of irrelevant. But there's a deeper level here where Omer is basically... Uh, writing off the responsibility to practice their own autonomy that these people have. Like, the, the country didn't have to descend into violence. And the only explanation that really makes sense is either they are just violent warfare people, uh, warlike people, 
or they are motivated by a deeply motivating,、uh, you know,、uh, belief system like Islam, and that justifies them to commit violence. Because the the opportunism idea that it, it, it's just destroying the country, so it's kind of the the soft racism of low expectations or a soft bigotry of low expectations that we needed to have a massive authoritarian military presence there in order to maintain order in the face of what in the face of some imams trying to rile people. That's not how you like like that. We wouldn't need all these soldiers if they didn't have this impulse towards violence that's caused by whatever. But basically, Omer was saying like it did take Saddam, or the U.S. would have had to come in and be almost as bad as Saddam, or similarly bad, or maybe not as bad but still pretty bad in order to keep everyone under control. The point of <laughs> the point of trying to create a democracy is not. Just to control people, the point is for people to embrace their individual autonomy, embrace empowering themselves and informing themselves, and and this should result in a, a open, free society. Wow! So if you get rid of the tribalism, it's not inherent. It just it's in, these are ideas, right? So it's right? it's, it's politics again, right? We're talking we're in, we're we're in the well, field of politics well, now, no, not I, theology I, as no, earlier thought. No, we're no we're talking about religious politics. I will grant you that the, the theological differences between Sunni and Shia are minuscule, but the the totality of their political difference is their religious identity. Right and and the the religious importance they see in it. It's not a political importance. We're talking about eternity here. No, we're talking we're about talking murder. About power. We're talking. We're talking about, about paradise. The, we're talking look, about the suicide bomber. There is a Sunni who's going to get up this morning or tomorrow morning or the day after that and decide to blow up a Shia or Ahmadi mosque in Pakistan, and he's going to see no benefit from this behavior in this life. Right, there's, there's, there is nothing good politically that's going to、yeah. come to him or his family yeah, as a I mean, result of this. Maybe, maybe not in Pakistan now because the military there has actually been taking a very strong stance against this kind of suicide terrorism. But look, I take your point that there, there's a religious element to suicide bombing that they think is legitimate. I don't think is, but I think like the problem with the Sunni Shia conflict and just reducing it to that is that you exclude other kinds of analyses. So, for example, Shias were living. Peacefully in Pakistan for most of its history, again up until after the Iraq War, sorry, the Afghanistan War, and then you have a new Pakistani version of the Taliban that begins blowing up Shia mosques. The founder of the country was a Shia. Some of its some of its intellectual and political elite were Shia. It's the same thing in many other countries. In Lebanon, for example, yes, they fought a civil war because they wanted to know who was going to control the government. Right? Is it going to be a Christian who was going to who was going to control the Lebanese government, or is it going to be a Sunni, or is it going to be a Shiite? Eventually, they came to an agreement. Now, it's the the Shia militants and the ISIS folks who are threatening them.、Um, in okay, other countries, well, in I, other countries as well. I mean, look in in Iran, which you would say is an Islamist regime, and I would agree with you. And you would think that they're trying to put all the Jews to death. There's eight thousand Jews living in Iran. There's a seat reserved for them in the parliament. They're very proud of their Persian Jewish. Identity, and so it's not well, just. Well, first、sectarian- of all, it's not. I mean, as you know, the mandate under Islam, however doctrinaire, is not simply to kill all the Jews, right? I mean, there's there's the whole business、right. of allowing them to live as dimmi, which、That's、they Christianity. Ha- yeah. So again, for for people who don't know, dimmi is basically a non-Islamic 
citizen of an Islamic country, right? You you have a special designation as being a non-Muslim, and you had they have what is called a uh, jizya or uh, let me try this here. It's oh, it's really gizya or sizya. Uh, it's basically you pay a tax, right? You pay a tax because Muslims pay a tax. So you, as a non-Muslim, you have to pay a tax. Uh, and and jizya is uh, jizya is ex- is expected to be paid in order to uh, stop jihad, right? So you have to pay it, or jihad will continue. Uh, this is basically extortion, essentially, and this is uh, enshrined in, in Sharia and is a practice. And yeah, so being anything other than a Muslim in a Muslim-ruled nation would be pretty crappy. You have to pay a tax to not believe in their nonsense. So it's it's not, again, the only way to constrain this so that we're actually talking about anything coherent is to is to I think come back to specific points and I want to return to the the paragraph you just read because you made another point uh, after claiming that that uh, everything that Majid is saying is obvious and that so many other people are doing it you made the point that uh, something about supposedly thin-skinned Muslims who cannot take a joke now I mean then this is the kind of writing and this is the kind of attitude that I just find just impossible to to square with the facts, and I just it, it seems to betray a kind of identity politics or just a lack of engagement with with the problem. So, what do you mean by supposedly thin skinned? I mean, are you, so are you doubting whether such thin skinned Muslims exist, or that are you are you just saying they're a tiny minority? What are you saying? Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Uh, we're going to call it quits here. We're going to have to find out more about uh, thin, supposedly thin-skinned Muslims on the next installment. Hopefully it will just be part five. I'm really trying to not do part six. Uh, less rambling from Kyle might help that. Anyways, um, GoFundMe, uh, Twitter, Kyle Style Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye.